Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, if you're using the Bible here, it's page 314, or come with me to 2 Kings, one more time, uh, chapter 23, verse 31, basically the last two chapters. Our study this morning is about three kings and two governors, but it's not the three kings of the uh, Christmas carol. But the three kings and two governors are the last five rulers of the nation of Judah, about 600 B.C. So we've come to the end of our study of 2 Kings today, and sadly the worst, not the best, is saved for last because we see indeed the certainty of sin's consequences for this nation. And so it's honestly kind of an unpleasant message. Not terribly Merry Christmassy, but it's a very important message. And if God would use it in some way in our lives to wave a little red flag or put the warning light on of maybe something we've been doing, thought of doing, that there are consequences for God's kids uh, of sin. We've been studying Judah's good and bad kings, and the prophets have been sent faithfully. Uh, to, to Israel and Judah then, uh, the bad kings. And he had put up with cycles of sin and idolatry for so long, but now it was, it was time's up. And judgment indeed comes. And as we read this, it's, it's easy in a sense to, to look at it and go, well, oh, Judah. I mean, it's like you think about a, a dumb criminal story or whatever, like, well, what were you thinking? Crime doesn't pay. Sin doesn't pay. But the reality is that Sin never pays uh, and for, for any of us. And we have to consider today why this passage of Scripture is so important uh, for us here today. In your outline, you'll, uh, if you're glancing at that some along the way, there's a lot of details historically here. If you get lost a time or two, it's okay. Uh, join us when you can. But uh, there's a lot of details about these five last rulers, and the, the four evil ones are all, unfortunately, the three sons and grandson of godly King Josiah that we've been studying the previous two weeks. Three ungodly sons and a grandson who also ruled, and they're the ones that preside over these uh, three successive waves of captivity, the people of Judah taken away captives to Babylon. So let's pick it up in verse 31 where we meet the first son of Josiah to be on the throne. Josiah has just been killed at age 39 in this battle with Pharaoh Necho. And it says Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three whole months. His mom's name, verse 32. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers, meaning ancestors, not his dad, but his ancestors, had done. Pharaoh Necho put him in chains at Riblah in the land of Hamath, so that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold, so a big fine or tax or tribute. But let's try to understand some of these geographical references, picking up a little bit from uh, the story we we studied last week. What's happening internationally is this. Uh, Egypt, that's Pharaoh Necho, has joined an alliance with Assyria, 
who had been ruling most of the empire of the day, because Babylon is rising as a superpower. And uh, what we saw last week is how uh, Pharaoh Necho went from Egypt to go join forces at Carchemish with Assyria to fight Babylon. And then Josiah, this guy's dad, tried to interrupt and interfere, and he was killed. And so the battle goes on at Carchemish. And at Carchemish, uh, the Assyrian-Egyptian alliance loses badly. The battle continues down to Hamath, actually, and they lose there too. And so where we're reading here is when he, he, King uh, uh, Necho, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, kind of as a consolation prize because he's now the loser, Necho, is headed back to Egypt. And on his way back, he captures, I can at least beat somebody, I, I, I can at least get this three-month king of the king I already killed, and uh, he, he captures him. He puts him in chains, verse 33, so that he might not rule, because he, he's still trying to express his, his power if he, if he had some. And he, and he imposes this tax or levy, but how is he going to enforce that? Look at verse 34. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Josiah, this is the brother of the guy he just put in chains, he made Eliakim, son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah, and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim, but he took Jehoahaz and carried him off to Egypt, and there he died. So what he does is he takes uh, and puts his own king, which is the brother, in charge, and then he goes back to Egypt. Now, it's interesting to know historically that actually it was not the oldest son of Josiah who became king for three months, but the middle son. Uh, perhaps he was uh, the, the stronger willed of, the, of those. And that's the one that Egyptian pharaoh takes and then he puts in place his weaker brother. At least he'd be in charge. And why would he change his name? Well, if you change someone's name, that means you're in charge. If you can make someone change their name, it kind of shows you have control. So he reigns, verse 35, some 11 years, and um, we'll see, verse 35, 36, verse 37, he did evil. But now, as we travel on into chapter 24, we see that something huge is, is happening internationally. During Jehoiakim's reign, we're on king number two in Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, so he submitted, but then he changed his mind and rebelled against, the, against Nebuchadnezzar. And the Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets, and surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh. That's, a, that's an ancestor who was very sinful and reigned 55 years and all that he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. So judgment has now struck uh, Babylon invades the land, and, and these other countries, which are like little countries around Judah, suddenly it's a free-for-all, and it's like, it's like a, a mob of vandals in a shopping mall. Everybody could come to Judah in their weakened state and take whatever they, they wanted. So, so now Judah is really 
suppressed, Babylon has taken over. And we actually know uh, from elsewhere in Daniel that at this time they took the first batch of captives from Judah, took them off to Babylon. The reason we know that is because we find one of them named Daniel who goes there at this time. Daniel 1.1, in the third year of the reign of this guy, Jehoiakim, that second king, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's Daniel, among those in Daniel, uh, among those captives. Then the Lord, then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court, seen as now in Babylon, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Who'd they find? Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Daniel and his three friends are part of that first wave of captives taken. So God's discipline is happening, but I want you to think about this. While God's discipline is happening because of sin, you got three young teenage godly men who were suffering because of the sins of others. And they are taken off to Babylon innocently. But God had a great plan for them. And we know of Daniel and these three friends of his. They are the ones who are delivered from the fiery furnace. Daniel's the one delivered from the lion's den. Daniel's the one who becomes the wise man and the, and the prophet to Babylon. He's the one. Daniel's, you read the book of Daniel and you find God's plan for all of history. Some of it's still future. And we go to Daniel today when we study prophecy. Because God had a good plan, even for these young men who suffered because of the sins of others. God makes no mistakes. And I would happily assume plenty of us have suffered from the sins of others. And God has not left us to just suffer from the sins of others. He actually has a plan for us. To do, to be and to accomplish things that he has in mind. He didn't abandon his kids. And God used this tragic, unjust captivity of Daniel and his three friends who were wrenched from their homelands, plopped as captives in Babylon, and he had a plan for them and, th- them, and God used them in fantastic ways that are still told in basically every Sunday school and sermons everywhere. Back in Jerusalem. Nations being punished for the sins, not only of the current evil kings, but the, the previous ones. Um, jump ahead to verse 6. Jehoiakim, this king, rested with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, it gets really confusing. Jehoiakim has a son named Jehoiakim, and uh, he succeeded him as king. And then the note, the king of Egypt, remember him, did not march out from his own country again because the king of Babylon had taken all of his territory from the Wadi of Egypt, that's the river, and to the Euphrates uh, River. So does Jehoiakim, the son, do any better? He was 18, verse 18, uh, verse 8. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three whole months. His mother's name, verse 9, he did evil just as his father had done. And at that time, here comes the second wave of... of, uh, of judgments from Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. 
And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and all of his officials all surrendered to him. And in the eighth year of his reign, of the king of in eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. So Jehoiakim the king is going off to Babylon along with all these others. So they surrender. His reign is cut short like his uncle Jehoahaz, who was taken to Egypt, but he's taken to Babylon. They surrender. You know, is, did Nebuchadnezzar hear that, you know, okay, my guy Jehoiakim died and they gave him the, his son the kingdom, but uh, I'm in charge here, so they don't get to choose who gets to be the next king. I choose, so he comes in and uh, he's going to replace him. But he, first of all, besieges the city, and Jehoiakim surrenders. And you find in verse 13 that Nebuchadnezzar not only takes the king, but he takes temple treasures, gold articles that Solomon, going back 400 years, had, he made this fantastic temple. Uh, he carried into exile, verse 14, all Jerusalem, all the officers and fighting men, all the craftsmen and artisan, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Verses 15 to 16 also describe again the king, the king's mother, his wives, and it lists who were in those 10,000, which included the 7,000 elite troops of the nation. So he is really emasculating the nation and taking away everybody that is of, 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 of you know, wealthier, skilled, notable, strong demographic, so they would be less likely to revolt. And off they go. Another Big trip, 400 to 500 miles. These guys are walking, probably, it says in chains, some of them. They're walking from Judah over the several-month journey to get all the way over to Babylon because of the certainty of sin's consequences. The first trip to Babylon, Daniel went there, and we see that God used Daniel and his three friends. Second trip there, Ezekiel. The prophet we read, Ezekiel, was part of that second trip there. Ezekiel 1. He writes, In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. Remember, he surrendered, we just said, and he went over there with all these people. In that fifth year, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. And we have the whole amazing book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament because the innocent suffered with the guilty, but God didn't leave the innocent without a purpose. And God began to work in Ezekiel, and Ezekiel becomes the key guy who is the one who encourages because he identifies he's been a part of this group. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kibar River, and there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days deeply distressed. And so God has a plan because there's a lot of the, the, the Jews that all went over there, they weren't all evil. The kings were evil. But a lot of the Jews were taken there, and God had a plan for them. And so he sent them a Daniel to be a model of, of courage and faith, and he sent them a, an Ezekiel to be an encourager and tell them that God still had a future for them. And we'll see some of those passages along the way. So Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim 
and Jehoiakim, his son, were through the last three that are called kings, and the next two are actually not called kings, they're called governors, because after all, if, if, if Nebuchadnezzar is running the show and he's the king, you know, these guys aren't really kings, they are, they are governors. And the next one is a guy named Zedekiah, and he will provide over the final death throes of the city of Jerusalem. And so here's how his ill-fated leadership begins in verse 17. He, king of Babylon, made Madaniah, king Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So just like the Egyptian king changed the name, the Babylonian king changes the name. I'm in charge. I tell you what I'm going to call you. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name, verse 19, he did evil. Verse 20, it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. So you have all the kings straight now, right? Because there's going to be a test. On the way out, there'll be a little quiz. You can pick it up. And so you'll need this. Josiah, we studied for a few weeks, a godly man. The first king to take the throne was Jehoahaz, his, probably his second son, reigned for three months, taken to Egypt. Instead, Jehoiakim goes on the throne. He's there for 11 years. He actually dies in Jerusalem. And he appoints his son, Jehoiakim, who reigns for three months. But then Nebuchadnezzar sweeps in, takes him captive to Babylon. And instead, his uncle, Zedekiah, is appointed governor. He's there for 11 years. And we'll see he ends up in Babylon as well. So really, Josiah's three sons all end up ruling over the nation in one form or another. So how did Zedekiah, the third son of Josiah, end up in Babylon? Verse 20b, the last line of the chapter. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. You'd think by now that takes some nerve or arrogance to do that. A decade earlier, just a little less than a decade before, remember all those 7,000 uh, elite forces were taken captive? And uh, the other officials, but evidently they had kind of regrouped and reappointed, and he decides to rebel, but Nebuchadnezzar will have none of it, and so he has to finally deal with pesky Judah. That the final straw is this rebellion of Zedekiah. So verse 1 of chapter 25, so in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. You guys are going down. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. And the city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Verse 1 is 9 to 11. That's two years. Two years the Babylonian army is surrounding Jerusalem. And by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe, there's no food for the people to eat. And that's how it worked in ancient war. You just surrounded the city that you couldn't otherwise conquer, and you starve them out. Um, I'm sure it's, it's kind of amazing, actually, that they survived for some two years, that they had the, the defenses and the resources to hold off mighty Babylon for that long. But if you recall, you know, one of the ancestors, Hezekiah, had built this amazing tunnel so that they would have water inside the city in case of siege. And so they're glad for Hezekiah's tunnel, but there was no godly Hezekiah on the throne like back then. 
who would throw himself in dependence upon God and say, God, apart from you, we got nothing. And then God sent his angel to destroy 185,000 Assyrians who had surrounded the city, but see, spiritually, they weren't in that place anymore to throw themselves in dependence upon God. And so the, the nation is about to fall and finally be destroyed. This is a movie. I just asked you to kind of press the pause button right there, okay? It, it, it's, it's, it's commercial break, but it's, it's more important than that. The city is going down. The city that God loves, the, the nation that God has treated so graciously for some 800 years since the time of Joshua, this whole thing is going to collapse down. But let's pause and think a little bit before we read the details. Through these last months, we've been studying... And people through the ages have been reading through the books of kings and they see there's a king that did evil, there's a king that sought the Lord. There's a king that did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord, there's a king that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And we kind of we just follow the, you know, what, so what happens to this king? What happens to that king? What have we learned, even if evidently the kings of Judah learned almost nothing because he kept having these spiritual failures. We have learned that those who seek the Lord, those who humble themselves, those who repent when they've done wrong, those who pray in dependence, those kings and those commoners are the ones who receive the grace and help of God. And so through the kings, we have read about a trusting widow who fed her last meal to Elijah and God made her oil and her flour never run dry through an entire famine year after year. We've met the Shunammite woman who God gave a son and then the son died and God gave the son back alive to her. And we've met Elijah who stood all alone against all the priests of Baal and he called down fire from heaven to consume that altar and he, he's the one who prayed and asked God for rain to end the famine and it rained and we've met Hezekiah who prayed and those, that angel came and killed 185,000 Assyrians and, and we realize God is able, God's available God is eager to show grace when we reach out to him but God is like tuned in to a single song of our heart. The title of the song is Humility Before God. And he's listening for that song. And there's a song about trust and about obey. There's a song about repentance. There's a, there's a song of courage. There's a song of trust and pray. Because God's opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. In all those years, God was eagerly responding to humble hearts. But so many kings and so many commoners alike just reeked with pride and kept going back to whatever the pagan idolatry was dangling in front of them, saying, here, you can have this. This, this is how you get good crops. This is, this is how you get pleasure. So have we caught the lessons of 400 years of godly and ungodly kings? Do we realize the certainty of, of consequences? Do we understand God is gracious? We love that message. But also that God disciplines those he loves like every good dad or mom. 
Well, verses 4 through 10 take us back to the, the details of this final collapse. Remember, they ran out of food. Now what? We got, we got weakened everybody in the city. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding all the city. In other words, nowhere to go. They fled towards the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. And he was captured. This is the king Zedekiah. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, which is still just north of Judah, where sentence was pronounced on him. And they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. So Zedekiah's last visual memory was the execution of his sons. The Babylonians were cruel indeed, but God had withdrawn his protection from Zedekiah and Judah and Jerusalem. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down the whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. So how, how sad was it for God to watch what God allowed? The city he loved, the temple, the temple where he had been worshipped, where about 400 years before Godly David had gathered the materials so his son could build it. His son built it meticulously and extravagantly. Generations of priests and worshipers had gathered in those courts and priests had gone into the holy place with this sacrifice, acknowledging the holy God and acknowledging him as ruler and creator and savior. Royal palace houses, every important building, there's smoke, there's flames Everywhere people are fleeing, maybe huddled in, in groups inside the walls, and the walls get broken, and they're outside the walls. They're out in the countryside. And the army comes through and just starts to push over that wall, walls that have been reinforced by, by faithful kings for generations, protecting God's special city. Now the walls come down, and you have a charred city smoldering, and surely everybody is weeping. Israel's final ruler is not even called a king, right? He's called a governor, really just a guy in charge. But he's now the third son of godly Josiah. A godly dad with three sons. A godly dad who discovered the word of God in the temple, read the word of God, said we've got to obey the word of God, read the word of God to all of his people, said we've got to follow the word of God. And all three sons reject the God of their dad and the word of God that dad honored. If you have a dad or had a dad who loves God and his word, you are a most fortunate person. And it would be so spiritually tragic to have a dad who loved God and God's word and you would turn your back on God and his word like all three of these sons did. Zedekiah, was it worth it? As they gouged your eyes out, 
took you in chains? Judah, nation, were all those idols worth it? Did, did they really in the long run benefit you? Did you, did you find out, boy, you sure come, become prosperous following these idols? And all those illicit, illicit pleasures you, you had at the, those pagan temple altars left you just guilty and dirty. And you compare your lives to the ones who sought God, did it, how did it turn out? Were you better off rejecting God? And, and so friends in this room, does, does the example of the kings of Judah make sense to us? As we think of anything that is drawing us away from wholehearted obedience to God, does, does, does any of this make sense? You can, you can take, how many more kings would it take? How many more, how many stories of the ones who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, the ones who did what was evil in the eyes, how many more examples would it take to figure out whether what is drawing us is worth it? Verse 11, the final deportation. Nebuzarad and the command of the guard carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over, some of them voluntarily to the king of Babylon, but the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. And so now this is the third sad caravan. It's made its way on this four to five hundred mile walk to Babylon. Summarizing some of the sections ahead, verses 13 through 17 describe how the on this final trip the Babylonians salvage the rest of the valuables from the temple. Back when we studied 1 Kings and these amazing bronze pillars that uh, Solomon had built and the huge basin where the priests took the sacrifices and cleansed the sacrifices and washed their hands, all made of bronze. All the gold and silver utensils that were used, beautiful things that everybody valued, they're taken. They tear off the exquisite artistic bronze work that adorned the inner walls of the holy place that just the priests saw. Verses 18 to 20 lists some 72 important people that King Zedekiah had appointed to replace all the other ones who were deported a decade earlier. And what happens to them? Verse 21. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So the 72 leaders they're dead. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. This, this event is the low point of, of the Old Testament. The, the, the worst judgment dating all the way back to Noah and the flood that surrounded the whole world, but this, this, was, this was the worst. Ezekiel and Daniel both went to Babylon. Jeremiah was the other key prophet of that era. He was given a choice by Nebuchadnezzar. When you read the book of Jeremiah, he was given a choice and he said, no, I'm going to stay in, in Jerusalem. Jeremiah, as you read that book someday, is, uh, is, is one who is mostly dealing with Jehoiakim during those years. Jehoiakim hated Jeremiah and the word of God and so he had him put down in a well. His feet in the mud. That's where they kept him captured and then they brought him up and then Jeremiah, this, this big 52-chapter book that we have in the Old Testament, he had written this all, all out, and God said, go take it to the king, and he took it to the king. 
And the king said, oh, you wrote something? And he cut the whole thing up and threw it in the fire. So Jeremiah wrote the whole thing over. That's why we have it. He also had warned Zedekiah, who had imprisoned him. The other book that uh, Jeremiah wrote, besides the book of Jeremiah, is uh, the book we have in the Old Testament, Lamentations. To lament means to grieve. It's five, five heart-rending chapters that he wrote while in Jerusalem, while actually on a city hill, a hill outside the city, and he wrote the book of Lamentations. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces had to become a slave. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. It's a sad, sad day. The sad ending continues, verses 22 to 26, with a fifth ruler, governor, that Nebuchadnezzar or his uh, yeah, appoints, verse 22, named Gedaliah. He's actually not evil. Just a little summary. Uh, we find elsewhere that he, Gedaliah was actually a friend of Jeremiah, but he just trusted the wrong guy, a guy named Ishmael, and he made a peace treaty with some powerful people in the land because he was supposed to kind of keep, keep track of things for Nebuchadnezzar. And Ishmael is a treacherous guy, and he betrays him and assassinates him. Um, finally, reading Jeremiah, Jeremiah is abducted because after they kill, after they kill Gedaliah's, the, the uh, Nebuchadnezzar's guy, Gedaliah, they know that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and do something, so most of the important people, they flee to Egypt and they abduct Jeremiah and take him with them, and Jeremiah dies in Egypt. You can read kind of the post-mortem anywhere along the way, you know, the sins of Manasseh or this or that. Or, but if we, if we go to the end of, of Chronicles, we find a statement that there's two key things that were the problem. One is the idolatry. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. That's why he took them, the chronicler says. But there was also this. He carried, that is, God carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. What is that about? The Sabbath rest. You see, part of the commandments of the Old Testament was, Leviticus 25 says that every seventh year they weren't supposed to farm the land. Farm for six years and then leave it rest. It's actually a smart practice in agriculture to let land rest. During a land where it just sets fallow, it is able to regain more of its um, nutrients, retains more moisture, it disrupts some of the cycle of some of the natural pests of the land. And yet God, would, not only was it happening bio, uh, biologically that way, uh, it was actually something that God was using spiritually to teach the people, you can, you can trust me that if you farm for six years, 
save some of the grain, you can trust me that I'll take care of you the seventh year even though you have no harvest. But they didn't do it. So, so God took the people out of the land and said, now we're going to get, give the land a long, long nap. And so for 70 years, the land wasn't farmed for the most part, which would represent 70 years times 7. If God was doing exact math, that's 490 years. That would go back to the time between Samuel and the first king, Saul. And uh, perhaps through all those years, they had not observed the Sabbath year. God rested his land. Well, hopefully that's enough bad news for one sermon. Consequences of sin. And now we begin to see that God, like any father, delights not in giving consequences, but in showing grace. And there's just like a little whisper, just like an, almost an insignificant story told at the very end of 2 Kings to give us a whisper of hope because of the grace of God. It's almost unexplainable. Verse 27. In the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, he's the one that's taken off. He only reigned three months and they took him away, right? In the 37th year, so like midway in these 70 years, in the year of evil, Merodach became king of Babylon, so a new king. He released Jehoiakim from prison on this 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him. But the Babylonians had conquered. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. Almost unexplainable. And there's actually stone tablets that have been found in Babylon that confirm that the king of Babylon was feeding Jehoiakim and his family during those years. We don't, why? What's that about? We saw it back in 24 verse 9, Jehoiakim's called evil, but it's interesting if we're guessing. The one thing that Jehoiakim did that was right is that he surrendered to Babylon because God through Jeremiah was telling the people, surrender to Babylon, you can't fight this. And Jehoiakim did do that. That's why he only ruled through three months, but it's also why evidently God showed him grace and even blessed him in captivity because Again, God doesn't delight in discipline. If you tell your child to sit in the corner, you don't leave him there forever, unless you forget. <laughs> you don't take away toys and tablets forever because you delight to, to be able to get past the discipline. And just a little hint of what God is going to do. And in fact, Jeremiah was telling the people, go to Babylon, go there, settle down, and be prosperous. God has a plan for you. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. This is in Babylon. Eat what they produce. Marry. Have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. I'm not done with you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and, and a future. When you're reading Jeremiah, you can get so accustomed to the stern warnings of God's judgment coming. But you see, that was all written before they went to Babylon. But in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, he writes a letter from Jerusalem where everything is burnt after the fact. And he sends this letter 
to the exiles in Babylon, and he says, God's got a future for you. And he assured them that, even assured them before he wrote the letter, that if they did go, I'll take care of you. Going back to chapter 24, my eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. Because God always wants to give us hope, even when he's allowing discipline. You know, it's what God does. It's who God is. He gives grace to the humble, even in times of discipline. And so Jeremiah had said, please go. Please go, and when you go, I'll bring you back. In fact, in this case, he even said, I'll tell you how long it's going to last. Jeremiah 25, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Jeremiah writes that in, in, in Judah. Meanwhile, time passes, and over in, in Babylon, where Daniel's at, right? Daniel writes, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And in our parallel accounts of 2 Chronicles, the way the, chapter, where the book ends is a description leapfrogging ahead to the end of the 70 years, and it says what happens after the Persians take over the Babylonians. The Lord has appointed me, King Cyrus of Persia says, to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, let him go up. A few years ago we studied the book of Ezra, and that's the story of people going back to the land, rebuilding the temple. Someday we'll study Nehemiah, where they also rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, because God still had a plan, and God would some years later send a Savior who would walk the streets of that Jerusalem and communicate the message that changes every life in this room. At the bottom of your outline, I've given you some homework. Um, reading assignment, if you will. I'm going to just kind of run through some of these principles in, in closing, but some of the passages are long, but it would uh, maybe be something that you would uh, read here in the near future to process with anything that God might have, by His Spirit, through His Word, jogged in your mind today. Here's an overview. Consequences of sin are certain. Pastor Nate was reading at the start about sowing and reaping. Whoever sows to please their flesh, that's our sinful nature. You, 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 just, you, you keep doing things that please self. Well, yeah, I can do this because that's what makes me happy, kind of a thing. From the flesh, we'll reap destruction. It just, it's how it works in God's world. We've also learned that our sin may bring consequences to others, right? The Ezekiels and the Daniels, and it was, they suffered because of somebody else's sin. Joshua, 2 Kings 24.3, it, it's Manasseh's sin. Read Joshua 7 sometime about a guy named Achan who stole stuff that God said don't take. And his whole family stole. And he suffered because of what he stole. But there's hope. God disciplines his children for our benefit. That's an amazing passage. 
And it says this, it, meaning discipline, produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Everyone in this room has experienced God's discipline one way or another because we're all sinners. And we've all seen, oh man, when I say those kind of things to my spouse, guess what happens? When I, when I treat people this way, when I was dishonest this way, but live with that fear of guilt or getting caught. But there's a purpose that God has behind that as we begin to see how that works. And he says, if you want righteousness and peace, make sure that you're being trained by the discipline that you experience. Because the fruit of that, there's, there's a harvest of discipline when we respond in humility. Repentance brings spiritual restoration and joy. Boy, none clearer than King David himself who fell into adultery and murder for hire. Unimaginable. And yet, what did God do for him? When he writes in Psalm 51, he pleads with God, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. And that's exactly what God does. That's what the cross is about. We're all sinners. And we know that we can be saved if we put our faith in Christ for eternal life. But there's a continual process in which God is dealing with sin in our life because it doesn't all go away when we put our faith in Christ, does it? We're sinners till we die. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. And so we need to learn about the, the ongoing forgiveness that He provides us. And He really does cleanse us. But it means coming to Him in humility and saying, not defending what we did, but saying, that's my sinful heart again. He does cleanse. And then as David prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Joy. David would learn, and I mentioned in your outline, reading the chapters 12 to 20 of 2 Samuel, David would learn there are consequences of sin, his sin that he could not change, but yet God could forgive and God could restore that joy. Certainty of sin's consequences, but always the hope that we have of God's grace as we humble ourselves. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all you have taught us through this, uh, the Word of God at all times, but this uh, amazing section of Scripture that traces these events, these people. As we kind of get to know the people who have known of you but rejected you, or the people who really have sought you to, to know you and love you and serve you, where we understand the seriousness of our life choices. Every one of us, Lord, here is able to process things that have happened in our life in the past and how uh, one thing we sow becomes another thing we reap. Uh, Lord, help us to find your, your grace and purposes and be trained by those things, but then, Lord, Help us to be warned ahead of time for all those things that, that the, the enemy, our, our sinful world, and the, uh, the, the appeal of sin might draw us to. Lord, help us to understand clearly, to think your thoughts, and to realize that uh, your holiness is more important to you than even uh, the, the, the blessings that, that you gave to, to Judah your holiness was more important to uphold that we would turn our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.